Is the world on fire? Hello, y'all. Welcome to Is the World on Fire, a podcast created by students and alumni at the Croc School of Peace Studies at the University of San Diego. My name is McCoy Turpin, and I'll be your host for this episode. We will be joined by Dr. Sarah Fetterman, our newest professor at the Croc School, a peace practitioner and author of the award-winning book, Last Train to Auschwitz. Listen as we discuss her more recent work on holding corporations accountable for their complicated past, the possibility of those corporations being changemakers in the face of injustice, and what happens when corporations are internationally present in conflicts. Is the world on fire? And if so, what fires are you tending to? <laughs> Thank you. It's a great question. And I'm really happy to be here and to be at the Croc School. Um, when I think about that question, because my work in this field began working on World War II and interviewing Holocaust survivors, you know, when I think of world on fire, I mean, I'm thinking of a Holocaust. And, and I would say that somewhere in the world is always on fire. And perhaps right now for many of us, politics has become part of our lives in a more profound way than maybe we had 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 it before. So there have always been countries and peoples that have been struggling and their lives have been on fire. Um, and I think there is a feeling more and more that it's encroached. And the plus side of that is that it's an invitation to engage with the world more um, and not just be kind of prosperous on our own and watching from afar. So what I what I focus on in in the fire piece because there's so many ways to contribute and there's so so many important areas to work on. So um, the one I have found myself in is corporate accountability for mass atrocity, and that comes from having worked in the business field before this work. And I look at how corporations participate in mass atrocity, mm -hmm. how that happens, and then how they can atone for that, or how do you how do you respond when you walk into running a company and your company, you know, 100 years, 500 years ago was uh, part of these atrocities. How do you atone? Yeah. And and a lot of your work revolves around the French National Railway Company, right? I, yeah. I think I might have misphrased that. Oh, that's right. I'm wrong. Is that right? Yeah. Um, and there's like a lot of interesting stuff. But one of the things that I thought was the most interesting was when you labeled them the perfect perpetrator. Mm. Um, I kind of want to know what that means yeah. and like what companies maybe now could also be considered the future yeah. perfect perpetrators. Thank you for bringing that up because this came to me as I so I was working on the French National Railways, which is SNCF. So anybody mm -hmm. who's been to France knows it, but you might not know that that railway also bids for contracts in the United States. Wow. So the California High Speed Rail project that hasn't happened, uh, mm -hmm. but they did bid for the California from the LA. I don't know if it was LA San Diego or LA San Francisco line, but they bid for that. They have the Virginia Rail line. They have the, they work on the Massachusetts, the MBTA rail. So they actually are part of this country in, in ways that people don't realize. But this company had a role in World War II transporting Jews to, to death camps. But it was also occupied um, by the Germans and it also played some heroic roles. So I got really interested in why was this particular conflict over the railways in the U.S. staying in the news? Why mm -hmm. this company? There's so many companies that have done wrong, terrible things yeah. now and in the past. There's so many other groups that have done terrible things. So I, this is this idea of, so you said perfect perpetrator, which works as well. I used ideal perpetrator, ideal, right. but those who know Max Weber tell me I can't use the word ideal, but I use it anyway. <laughs> and I say, I know Weber, I know you're not happy yeah, about yeah. that. But and what I meant was, what is it about one, the ones that we focus on? There's so many people participating in conflict. 
and, and our attention is drawn to one, one week, right? And then another, but why those? So I started to realize that it has these shared attributes. So to be like the perfect perpetrator, you need to represent the nature of the atrocity. So the railways, the Holocaust had not existed without it. Yeah. Almost everybody in those death camps arrived by train. So it is the symbol of the Holocaust. So it's a rail company. The other is that the ideal perpetrator or the perfect perpetrator is one that's really abstract and almost monstrous. It's not mm -hmm. something we can relate to. We can't be like, oh, you know, they also have some good. They also have bad. So a train company is great because it's like thousands of people. It's steel. You know, it represents the mechanization that has taken command in our society. Yeah. So it's like a monster, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's a monster. So that was perfect. Um, and it also... Also, you have to have somebody focusing on it, being like, this is the bad guy. This is the bad guy. Because mm -hmm. otherwise your attention gets pulled to others. And the railway had um, a lawyer in New York who was focused on them and kept the attention on them because the German rail company was like, "Uh oh, are we going to have trouble in the U.S. too? Like, no, no, no. They're just after the French. So you need kind of this combination. Um, and if you pay attention to who we're looking at in the news, so you're mm -hmm. asking like the abstract ideal yeah, perpetrators. Yeah. So the pharmaceutical industry for the opioid epidemics, right? For sure. And even actually, you can even say wildfires, just to keep the theme of the podcast here. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's like this, it's a monster that we can't control. And what happens when we make these perfect perpetrators is we don't realize what connection we have to those mm -hmm. things, right? More people are drawing that line of wildfire, climate change, our actions. <laughs> um, yeah. But you can kind of say, hey, like, it's a monster. I have nothing to do with it. So there's there's quite a few. I mean, Putin is a is a perfect one today right. um, because he's kind of abstract, kind of inhuman. Even Madeleine Albright said that his face looked reptilian yeah. when she met with him. He's like a cultural phenomenon. Yeah. yeah, not really. I mean, not here, but yeah, you know, internationally, it seems like with meme, the way the memes have sort of expanded, yeah. like <laughs> him on the on the horse with his shirt off. Right. It's like. That's actually perfect. The, yeah, the, the, all of our consciousness when we hear about Putin, or at least my generation, yeah. we're like, "That's the meme, right?" That's perfect. No, yeah. I'm glad you kind of evoked those images because even the playing with them and kind of animating yeah. them and mm -hmm. is like making him less and less human. Yeah, in that in that, yeah, yeah, yeah. In that way. Yeah. So there are many others. Um, Harvey Weinstein became a really ideal perpetrator for uh, the Me Too movement and mm -hmm. sexual assault because. He was kind of larger than larger than life, even the way he looked. He just kind of doesn't look like a super nice guy. No, yeah. It's better when you fit the part. But of course, the challenge of this is so many more of us and, and of humanity that participates in these atrocities, whether we mean to or not, we don't look like that. We're yeah. not abstract. Yeah. yeah. Well, so talking about atrocities, I, I think it's interesting, like what we define an atrocity, mm. right? Because um I think about the ideal perpetrator and I thought about Jeff Bezos and Amazon mm. and I used to be an HR representative at an Amazon oh. facility. And so wow. I, I think about like almost the human rights violations of like labor laws mm -hmm. being also their own sort of mass atrocity, maybe not quantifying to like the death of human beings, but yeah. almost like their inability to live like, you know, a sustainable lifestyle. And I wonder what like a company like that, like how would, how would they in the yeah. future be, be like, the the forwarding of a new movement or a new like you know labor rights idea or something like it's that. So interesting that you say that. I didn't know you had that HR pass. That's really uh, interesting. Oh, we can talk more about that later. Uh, I wanted... We don't have to. It wasn't very exciting. <laughs> well, it's still interesting to have had that experience, yeah. and I'm so glad you had it because it's good to work in companies and get a sense. So 
you know, Amazon is another one of these complex actors. And mm -hmm. it's, you know, on the one hand, kind of carrying the economy, um, delivering people goods during the pandemic. I mean, I know I was like, thank you. You know, I don't yeah. believe my house. They made things possible. Mm -hmm. But I also know that a lot of my students were working in the warehouses because uh, and a lot of people in Baltimore, because they actually have um, they don't have a check the box requirement. So you can be a returning yeah. citizen from prison. And so it gives a lot of people jobs. But the students who'd had them were like, oh, my God, we were on our feet 15 hours a day. Yeah. Right. All right. So, you know, you exactly. know about this. Yeah. I was the one that got complained to. Yeah. OK. <laughs> well, yeah. Legit. So you, legitimate. Compl yeah. Complaints, legitimate complaints. Yeah. So I'm kind of been noodling over the ways in which corporations can actually become the protectors of human rights because mm -hmm. they're setting the standards. You know, when when former President Trump pulled out of the Paris Climate Accord, a number of companies said, actually, we're going to we're going to hold to that. Yes. And so if human rights standards pull back from a federal level, they could still be self, you know, pursued by these different corporations. Very interesting. And, but holding holding them accountable also mm. to me is such a I don't know how to hold them accountable. And I was part <laughs> of the beast for a little bit. You know? So I, I think of it as like trying to hold back a giant with rubber bands. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great metaphor. I love because that. when it comes to law right now, there's not a lot of legal liability mm -hmm. especially for the past there's um the courts tend not to hold them accountable in the u.s hold mm -hmm. them liable in the u.s or abroad and there's no international court that holds corporations accountable so yes. we've got the international criminal court holds individuals we've got um, the court of justice which does be mediates between states but there's nothing that deals with corporations the icc international criminal court almost added corporations but they didn't um so it's really about what one of the huge areas is what we do as consumers, when we write them, mm -hmm. who we work for, how we participate when we work for companies. Yeah. yeah. Um, I've been actually voting in shareholder, like, cause I, you know, I have a bunch of funds. Like, you know, if you have any retirement fund, you've got all kinds of um, stocks. And then I get these shareholder note votes and I look, and if you just, by the way, if you look at the end of the vote, the mm -hmm. things at the end, it's where they hide that they don't want to do anything related to climate change, gender equity, or human rights. So yeah. vote, look at look at the board recommendations and make your vote at the end. Yeah, that's so, so I'm interested how like, I think a couple days ago, it was a picture of like an Adidas shoe <laughs> yeah. stepping on a on a Nazi and this is the potential for um, <laughs> human rights or to hold, hold people accountable for mass atrocities, companies. And yeah. you said voting, but then, you know, the classic millennial response to that is like, every time I vote, like what actually happens? Yeah. So like, I'm interested how we can, as individual subjects, engage it almost like beyond that, or yeah. maybe it may. I mean, that's a hard question. A, no, it's a great. It's the it's the question. And yeah. first of all, I just want to really validate the kind of the moving of the tides between being optimistic and nihilistic. Mm -hmm. That you don't. That that's like a really kind of human experience. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that to deny that, like, if you didn't have some of these moments of like, how? Oh my God, this is overwhelming. It wouldn't, you wouldn't be really grappling with it. No. Yeah. So I just want to say that too to people who are like, ah, oh, but I, but I'm just not always positive. You don't have to always be positive to work in this field mm -hmm. because actually if you care about the world, it's because you felt the pain and suffering in the planet and you want to contribute in some way. Yeah. So in terms of the how, you know, not assuming that everybody who works in these corporations wants terrible things to happen to the planet. Yes. And right. They don't go into these jobs like, all right, I want to destroy the planet, abuse the workers. Yeah. <laughs> right? no, 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 no. Yeah. You know, make sure fill landfills with plastic, you know, and I want to make all kids obese with sugar cereal. Yeah. You know, it's just like you just start working and then you kind of like you do a little piece of something mm -hmm. that works exciting. 
And working in business was really helpful for me because I did see like, okay, people were like living their lives, making money, families. It wasn't all, but it sort of happens anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of a waking up to all of the ways in which we're kind of part of these systems Absolutely. wherever we are and working together with each other to move in that direction. Mm -hmm. Now, there will be people who are not the easiest to start with. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and so in that case, I just actually say start with those who are there are some people who are very effective. I've actually um, mm -hmm. Daryl Davis, who's the jazz musician who actually African-American who befriends white supremacists and then gets them to leave the Ku Klux Klan. I've Have you seen, seen his videos? Yeah, I've seen his videos. I like I, I just acknowledge this man because he goes right for it. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. But I, I'm it's a I'm hard a group to pursue. Yeah, <laughs> but he I don't know how he does it. Yeah. So anyway, um, so you, kind of, you can work with the populations that you feel most comfortable with. But I like, you know, working with companies from the standpoint and the then the assumption that they're not. This is not their intent. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we have to call each other out and say, hey, you know, I, I know you don't mean to do harm, but you do have a weekend a Uyghur detention center making your cars, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, or whatever, you know, whatever it may be. So I do think that I actually I, it may sound small, but I know it just it's partially small because the world is so big. But like actually writing companies being like, I love this organic product. And why are we using plastic wrapping mm -hmm. or like those actually start to build in companies. Um, okay. And there is a tipping point. Um, when we don't respond, companies just assume it's okay. Yeah, I really understand the skepticism around political participation, but yeah. the idea of like, if we totally check out, we're just creating more space for people who are going for power. That makes me think about the responsibility of like transnational corporations. Mm -hmm. And I know you've written a little bit about that as well, but they can kind of like get away with things across yes. borders and not really have to be yeah. held accountable for it. Like, where do they play? And they have more power too. Okay, this is a huge area and I'm yeah. glad you brought it up. So Stephen Cole, who's written about this and he was talking about how Exxon basically has writes their own rules. Mm -hmm. And internationally, it's, it's quite difficult because in developing nations, not only just developing nations, but often in developing nations, there's such a, a focus for the government on economic strength. Right. that they want those companies there yeah even if the local populations have mixed feelings but even the local populations sometimes want them there because they get they get some benefits but it can damage the environment and they have no recourse for human rights our state department is in an awkward position because they mm -hmm. have to both protect human rights and u.s business interests so they've got right. a difficult line um, to play as well so it's really it's really difficult abroad the upside is when corporations decide they do want to make a contribution, yeah. the impact is enormous. Sure. Um, so it for this moment, we're a little bit counting on um, the will of these corporations. I was heartened to hear the CEO of Salesforce talking about how um, about more than 50 percent of the billionaires he knows are, are focused in this direction and CEOs like they actually want to do good. This okay. is really what they're focused on. Yeah. So that's that's really heartening to me as, as I'm hearing it from the from the business community. Mm -hmm. So we start with them. Start right? with the ones that want to start with the ones who are going to so cheer mm -hmm. them on and then talk together about how we can do these little things in our environment, our own environment. Yeah. Yeah. And not making them all ideal perpetrators. You know, yeah, it's like yeah, you yeah. can't yell at Exxon and then go fill up your car, you know, <laughs> <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> which yeah, is yeah. what we all sort of do to some mm -hmm. degree. Right. Like raise my fist, you know, on Twitter. And then, you know, I'm using a computer that's been probably has parts mined by children or whatever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So exactly. we're all compromised. It's like, yeah. Oh, there's no ethical consumption under capitalism. Right. <laughs> <laughs> or right? I don't know. Or being or human. Yeah. 
I don't know. Like, you know, can you be this pure human that doesn't cause any harm? No, you can't. That's, right? That's just the, the, Unless you're yeah. a fruititarian, right? Like uh -huh. whatever falls from the tree, but then you could plant those seeds that you end up eating. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. I've tried exactly. it all different ways. Exactly. Well, it seems like the good ones even have a hard time holding each other accountable because mm. like, I don't know if you followed this in 2019 in Bolivia, there was sort of an interesting election that took place and Evo Morales got ousted by a coup, but the election results that were given were falsely were were falsely accused of being um uh illegitimate election results okay. and then there's a shell corporation in germany that was a big part of influencing the government watchdog that said that those results oh, wow. were false in bolivia and that corporation was part of an a one that elon musk was invested in to mine lithium in bolivia Wow. And it's like, does a new wow. leader, right? And then you're like, okay, it's so, it's just so hard to grapple. I'm with. so glad you, 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 thank you for sharing that yeah. example. And um, one I look forward to learning, to learning more about. I've been, those of who are familiar with uh, BBH or Brown Brothers Harriman, mm -hmm. it's a company that started in Baltimore um, okay. with an Irish immigrant, got involved in cotton capitalism and then went on. But what's really interesting in this company, and there's a book uh, about it called Inside Money, and it shows how they actually got involved in Panama mm. and elections in Panama, but early. I mean, this is like this intervention yeah. and they are like, whoa, now we're doing international affairs and starting to lead governments in the direction of what was good for business, but being called on by the U.S. government to participate. Mm -hmm. So what was so uh eye-opening for me was to be like oh like this has actually been happening for a very long time i'm just yeah. newer to the party yeah, right? yeah 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 i'm i'm almost not sure after kind of after having studied this is it more than it was before or is more just visible than it was before yeah. and i and i think that has to do with th that more of us are touched by the fires of the world than we have been before yeah um Social media. Probably. Yeah, social media, but even role. like this global pandemic, we just mm -hmm. had in a way, um, it's extraordinary to be part of something that the whole planet went through. Yeah. I, I just had this experience of like, whoa, we are all in this together and mm -hmm. we're all alive for the little arc that we're all alive together, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that I had this real sense of, of shared humanity. Um, but the climate also being shared, I don't know how much has been so globally shared um, in, in that way. Um, yeah. Speaking of climate, I yeah. actually had an interesting question. I was talking with one of my friends about um, this podcast that we we're going to have. And uh, he posed a question to me and he goes, in future mass atrocities that will probably be um, imposed through climate change, who do we hold accountable yeah. for that? For that, because climate change is pushed by corporations. Yeah. Right? And like climate <laughs> migration and those mass atrocities. What what is the future of those guys yeah like, and and all of us i mean greta thunberg's like waving her finger at all of us right uh -huh. governments and, yeah. and and businesses and she's right she's like you're handing down this problem to us yes um and so it's gonna be yeah i mean the thing and this is this is why these atrocities happen like the accountability is so diffused mm. so who is it which car company would you hold accountable right and they're all yeah. dead or which and and one of the challenges in, in the corporate accountability is there's a lot of golden parachutes, right? So mm -hmm. people like work as hard as they can. This is actually the former CEO of Pepsi was talking about this. She's like, she sees people just come in, just like kind of collect as much as they can at the top. Mm -hmm. And then they check out. Yeah. Like she's like, this isn't leadership where you're thinking 500 years into the future, mm -hmm. right? That's just like go in and like that. 
I don't know if you played this silly game, Hungry Hungry Hippo. Yeah. It's just the marbles, <laughs> and all you do is does slam that. <laughs> but some reason, it just occurs to me, it's like, just like, give me all the marbles I can get. Yeah, yeah. You know, and and it becomes just kind of a free-for-all. And so, you know, a lot of the, the, the older business leaders are saying, like, come on, we got to think, like, further ahead, you know. My, my colleague Dana Dolan writes about kind of slow emergencies and we're seeing much more written about these kind of slower mm-hmm. things where you can't really see how your plastic fork has anything to do with the fire, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. In Oregon or whatever. So mm-hmm. um, Fanya Davis, who's a restorative justice practitioner in, in Oakland, California, has talked about, you know, she was in the civil rights movement. Her sister was Angela Davis and the two of them were, mm-hmm. you know, very involved. She said, you know, back in the 60s, we were terrible. We were practically beating each other over the head with peace signs. Uh, you know, she's yeah, like, yeah. and gender-wise, it was terrible. She's like, so in many ways, she sees the movements of today, at least treating each other with dignity and respect. And so mm-hmm. that's an area which also matters. Absolutely. Um, what I saw in, in Baltimore and really the legacies of slavery and Jim Crow and redlining was dignity has so been stolen from the community there mm-hmm. and many communities in the world. And one of the things we can all do, and I think this is very hopeful and from Donna Hicks's work, is bring dignity back to those spaces. Mm-hmm. And you can come back to a space and treat people with dignity. And that's as important, you know, as what you're actually giving them, you know, and doing for them, looking them in the eye, treating them, you know, bringing that humanity back. So I think there's a lot we can do on the personal level that's really rewarding in yeah, the day to day as we're reading about Bolivia. We're reading about, you know, different um, extractive companies around yeah, the world. Absolutely. I feel like one of the big whole pitfalls that we fall into as as change makers or hopefully as me per, a future change maker. Yeah. Right. But as a change maker yeah. yourself um, is always wanting that like perfect sort mm-hmm. of solution. And yeah. then when we see those solutions where we're like that was patchwork like that. <laughs> I just that just didn't get the job done right like what what do you how do you yeah how do you you know think about those or, yeah. or bring yourself to be more hopeful because for me it's it's oh man yeah you know, you know I I look to people who've really done it at a massive level like mm-hmm. Paul Farmer who who died this year um maybe of exhaustion I'm not sure but you know he he's a, a doctor who went to Haiti and brought vaccines and um, then started working around the world and against like incredible odds. Like mm-hmm. he could never help the amount of people that he was trying to help. Yeah. And he would sit there and feel helpless and not, he'd actually like steal medicine from Boston and bring it down to Haiti. <laughs> um, and I just thought like, okay, if he can have that kind of endurance, yeah. you know, and just saying like, all right, I'm going to help this person in front of me. And then I'm gonna help this person in front of me. And mm-hmm. then I'm gonna like do what I have to do to help those people. And mm-hmm. there are there are many people that you know are as famous as Paul Farmer um, and, and his colleagues, many of them, who who do this work. So I like to think of that. You know, I had a, a bit of an arg- uh, argument conversation with um, French intellectual, and he 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 was. Um, I was telling him about the parable. He called my work in mass atrocity mm-hmm. of you turning over crabs who get flipped on their backs. Yeah. I don't know if you've heard that parable. So you're walking down a beach and you see a crab and it's on its back and you're like, oh, like I should help that crab. And you flip him over and the crab goes off and he's awesome. You see another one, you flip it over and you flip it over and you're like, I'm so fulfilled with this work. Like I'm saving all these crabs. They're having a great life. They probably don't know that I'm great, but like they're, he's like, (laughs) then you walk over the hill. I think he, he told, maybe he told me this parable anyway. And he's like, and it's just like forever crabs, (laughs) right? You just see crabs for miles and miles. And he's like, so what do you do? And I said, well, to every crab you flip, it mattered. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, get some more friends, flip over some more, mm-hmm. some more crabs. So I think it's, um, 
not letting kind of the the piece that you're doing. You are a change maker now. Like you just have to like own it. It's not. It's not going to be like. And then I cured this, and <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. you're living it. So so you so you are doing it, which connects me to the other point of like we need to support each other and re-energize each other yes. um, and encourage and like know that everybody's work is incomplete and we're mm -hmm. all compromised and like, but that's okay. Um, how can we support each other and energize each other? And I hope, you know, the, the Croc Institute is so perfectly and school positioned for that because it's mm -hmm. such a beautiful space and there's such great people here. And I just hope we can bring more. Um, I know they have the women peacemakers who come yeah. and yeah. like kind of relax a bit and, and reflect on their work and strategize together. So yeah, it's a team sport. <laughs> it is. It is. And I wonder also, there's always the other crabs to turn over. Yeah. But those crabs might get exhausted or flip back over again, <laughs> right? And so it's like... <laughs> I love that. How, that's such a good how point. How do you engage that? Yeah. It's no, that and that really... Thank you for... That's such a beautiful addition to the parable because, um, you know, especially in Baltimore, when you're trying to get, you know, people off of... I mean, or I saw, you know, it happens lots of places, but getting people off opioid addiction or mm -hmm. like people who um trying to prevent their kids from falling into gangs or like getting right. like and and like the kid will do better and then like they do something like again and then they get right. and it's just like this feeling of like oh I, I can help them for a moment and then and then they slip back and that's that's really difficult work people who work in addiction people who work um in communities that just have this kind of vortex that pulls them back to the or or um what Peter Coleman calls attractors, like mm -hmm. these systemic attractors that pull them back to patterns. Um, in which case, I think when we're doing that kind of work, um, it's really important to remember that people are not, not just to see the people as failing, but mm -hmm. that they are in systems, especially with addiction. I mean, that's barely choice. Um, yeah. Uh, they're being pulled back by these systemic things. And that helps us with the patience, you know, and frustration of, of, of people returning to certain behaviors. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's very interesting. I um gonna transition a sure. little bit. This is sort of backtracking, but it's it's a question I yeah. wanted to ask you is like, sure. can we think of government as businesses and corporations? Oh, yeah, it's funny you say that because I was reviewing an article last month and it was talking about these business actors in in these developing countries. And I was like, how do you know, like, have you really separated them from the government? Because in a lot of countries, US included, mm -hmm. people are in business and then they're in government and then they're back to business. Like the lines, the revolving door yes. between those two. And so I think even uh, differentiating and trying to disentangle one from the other is quite tricky. I mean, you're not going to corporate lobbying is huge. Corporate mm -hmm. influence on government is huge. So I don't I'm like I I actually would love to work with an artist on this. Can somebody kind of visualize like that connection for us? Because it feels um, really webbed together. Yeah. Um, and so we talk about these entities. It's funny, you, you felt that there was less talk about governments. I was in, in at the Carter School thinking, wait, why aren't we talking about businesses? We're only talking about governments. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> but yeah. you, were, you were seeing more focus on um, in other areas. One of the former students at the University of Balt Baltimore, uh, Robin McDonough, always said, just follow the money. If you want to understand a conflict, <laughs> just follow the money. And she was so right about that. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Well, and then I think about transnational conflicts like the Israel-Palestine yeah. uh, conflict. And I'm like, okay, so U.S. arms companies are yeah. held accountable? Or is it the government, the United States federal government, that's giving them arms or, or giving the green light to arms companies to give them over to Israel-Palestine? Yeah. It's like they're so interconnected. It's like hard to know. It's a really, yeah, it's a good example because um, Herb Kelman and lots of others who have done peace building dialogues and many others who are doing peace building, mm -hmm. building dialogues there now. If it were just 
the people who lived there, they yeah. figure it out. So this is a conflict that's being fueled to your kind of to your point by other parties who Absolutely. are playing out dramas through them because they kind of like they do these peace building dialogues. They there's some beautiful books um, that have come out about this of people people befriending people um, who have lost kids and so on from the other side, and they they find their way forward in their hearts, right? Mm -hmm. But then to your point, there's like tons of money flowing in um, for many years. Uh, Israel has been kind of the cat's claw um, for the U.S. and the Middle East, right? Um, mm -hmm. So there's been that kind of connection there. And because of the Holocaust and during the Holocaust, the U.S. wasn't terribly helpful, but now mm -hmm. kind of wanting to be on the kind of the right side of that particular atrocity as well. So, yeah, I, mean, I think it's really interesting when you see parties unable to resolve something, mm -hmm. take a look at who else is not visible right that's yeah. holding it up i mean even this is the other thing with ideal perpetrators like even with harvey weinstein there are other people that like knew what he was doing yeah and jeffrey epstein whatever all the like time, they, yeah. they know and they're not saying anything like what about these bystanders what about people who kind of let it go and um or perpetuating it in other ways mm -hmm. so i think that's one thing when we think about conflict that's helpful and i like this from william murray negotiation but focus on the separate the people from the problem mm-hmm Right. This is Israel Palestine is not just a failure of the people involved. No, yeah. Right. Um, it's a long historical and, and a systemic. Yes. Yeah. And contemporary. And there's a lot of dynamics fueling it, um, keeping it, keeping it going and interests keeping it going. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a tough one. And um, do you have anything to add uh, broader conversations wise about what we just said? I know we went over so yeah. many things, but before we kind of wrap up with you talking about yourself a little bit yeah <laughs> yeah i mean i i think these have been such great questions and the all the all the books that i'm working on deal with it to some degree mm -hmm. we have one my husband and i have a book coming out this summer called narratives of mass atrocity victims and perpetrators in the aftermath to talk about these overlapping roles and these complex mm -hmm. systems which has been really helpful and the book about the french national railways is also about the complexity and overlapping roles and systemically how it all um, interplays so just to say, like, people want to read more or ask me more later, I'm happy to talk awesome. about Awesome. But yeah, as we're ending, a uh, little bit of background. Introduce yourself to yeah. the the broader U or San Diego, uh, University <laughs> of San Diego audience. Yeah. And, yeah. Oh, I'm really, really excited to get to know people on the campus, mm -hmm. uh, faculty, students, and staff. And um, it's just a wonderful feel here. I mean, there's just something about this place. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh, I Just to, like a very kind of brief overview I've always been like this, like into this work. So this is not not new. Um, but I went to an incredible like restorative justice high school okay. where um, the rules were voted on by the students and enforced by the students. And they had equal votes with the faculty. It was called the Scarsdale Alternative School. And, you know, if someone was caught, you know, stoned in class, like you don't call the police, you bring them to fairness committee. And then, you know, you think of a consequence together and you say you being stoned is detracting from my education because you're the smartest person in the class and you being stoned is not helping. You know, it was like such yeah. a different. I was like, this this is amazing. Like mm -hmm. it was democratic. It was restorative justice. And I was like, it actually can work. It's exhausting. <laughs> yeah. debating everything but i i feel like that was like really instilled in me like the possibility of what these processes can offer yeah and then i kind of fell into business i didn't i kind of meant to do it for just a little bit between like finding my my way but in a way i'm so glad i did it i mm -hmm. ended up working with large companies in 12 countries and using three languages and it was the advertising field and i had like a you know some turning points and and 
before I, I knew I wasn't really into into business in that way. I thought it was exciting, but it wasn't for me. Um, but there were still like small moments where ad agency wanted to sell. They're trying to sell more soda, but they wanted to focus on people who were already buying a case of soda a week because those are your heavy users. Mm-hmm. And I was like, do they really need more soda? You know, and like that, I wasn't particularly helpful way of thinking. I was like, but you know, they're already having a case of week and they're like in a two person house or whatever it was, you know, I was yeah. just like, I, I think we should lay off them and go, you know, maybe take the people who never have it. They can have a can once in a while. And there were a few other things where I felt like I was promoting, helping promote items to people who either didn't need them, who it would harm them in some way, mm-hmm. um, either financially or physically. And then I just like, I couldn't do it. And then it was, um, they transferred me to Paris not because I was saying that. But anyway, they transferred me to Paris because I spoke French and we acquired a French company. And that's where I saw the impact of World War II, World War I and World War II. And I saw the trenches of Verdun. And I was like, oh my God, almost every French family lost a son in these, you know, who had a son of this age in these trenches. And, And then they have this memorial of the bones of these teenagers. And I just thought like, we can't, we can't do this again, you know? And that was just kind of the beginning. I saw my own name on a Holocaust memorial wall, and I talk about that in Last Train to Auschwitz. But it was seeing my own name and starting to be like, this really could have been me. And, you know, we all kind of have these moments at different times, um, that that sense of connection. But then I I kind of got out of business, but I'm so glad I was there. And I I hope listeners, like, whatever work you do, it doesn't mean you can't also do this. You know, it's like like when huge companies have, like, an ethics department of three people. I'm like... Do you really outsource ethics to a small department or like is ethics like a way of being in the world that you can do this work wherever you are? Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Great talking to you and look forward to more, you know, throughout the semester. Thank you for this opportunity. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to today's episode with Dr. Sarah Fetterman. Before you go, we want to hear from you. Share your questions, stories, or ideas on the fires you see in today's world. Contact us on Instagram at crockschool or via email at istheworldonfire at gmail.com. And let us know, what is your fire?